Hi, welcome to episode one of the Disability Perspectives podcast. My name is Utah Kirshner. If you haven't already, please check out my introduction for this series to learn more about my inspiration for this podcast. Today, I sit down with Florida State Honors Medical student and one of my very best friends, Lily Lamb. During the next 45 minutes or so, we'll take a look into her life and experience with autism spectrum disorder and how this disability has impacted her. We'll discuss a number of topics related to ASD. It is my hope that you will enjoy hearing from Lily as much as I enjoy talking with her. So to begin with, um, I'm going to introduce our special guest, and I will actually let her introduce herself. So Lily, if you want to introduce yourself, go for it. Yeah, of course. So my name is Lily Lamb. I am an 18-year-old. I'm studying health sciences at the University, Florida State University. I don't go to the other school. Um, I have been living with um, non-diagnosed autism spectrum disorder for 18 years now. Um, and I think I have some really interesting things to say about not only uh, women who have, you know, symptoms of ASD, but um, just ASD in general. So I hope I can offer some really cool insight into this. Sweet. Do you want to give any more information, like any more background information, anything else about like biographical information, where you're from, right. your interests, anything okay. like that? <laughs> yeah, of course. So I'm from Live Oak, Florida. Um, it's a really, really small town, very conservative, agricultural base, went to a really small high school. Um, I am really into, I do a lot of school right now, especially with the pandemic. Um, I also am really into movies and I love specific groups of movies. Um, I'm really into sports. I used to do sports in high school. I'm not doing them so much right now, but I'm planning on playing ultimate frisbee in the spring. Um, and I'm also just into, um, I really have been doing a lot of calligraphy, like the handwriting stuff that you see in like Etsy. That's what I've been doing a lot of to like waste time. So I hope that's significant, like enough. <laughs> yeah. Sweet. Uh, Thanks. Thanks for sharing all of that. Um, okay. So just just a little bit of um, sort of housekeeping things before we really jump in. I, I do want to take note of the fact that you um, said that you are undiagnosed. So just as a general disclaimer, and, and I'll let you add to this if you want, but I want to kind of be clear up front that um, our goal here isn't to for you to and this is a concern you shared with me initially when I first asked you to be a part of this, is that you don't want to misrepresent um, what autism spectrum disorder is. Right. And so I, I want to share that disclaimer at the beginning that you are undiagnosed, which I know you mentioned, um, but that doesn't take away from the fact that you have experienced these things, right? Absolutely. And uh, that is a huge concern of mine of misrepresenting a disorder I don't have. Um, and that's why I really insisted on that we, you know, really clearly talk that I do not have this specific diagnosis. Um, and there's, we're probably going to get into why I don't have that diagnosis. But um, yeah, I still hope that um, whoever is listening will still understand, like, some of the insight I have, regardless of whether or not I have a formal piece of paper that says you have this disorder. Okay, sweet. 
So um, that actually serves good as a great segue sort of into our first topic, and that is um, before we really get into what you've experienced and, and the symptoms you've um, exhibited and all of that is, is talking about the fact that you don't have a, a formal diagnosis and, and why mm-hmm. that is. Um, so I'm going to share a quick statistic. So um, one, one for sure is uh, autism spectrum disorder is more than four times more common among boys than among girls. And so that's just mm-hmm. one among many reasons um, why you, you didn't necessarily get a diagnosis um, when you were really young for ASD. Um, do you have any more, do you want to share any more insight into, you know, why you didn't get a diagnosis, what your experience has been with not having a diagnosis and um, sort of how that affected your childhood? Right. So, um, again, I am a, I identify as a female. I was born as a female. So obviously that statistic really does hold up. And, um, you know, I'm not the only female I know who exhibits ASD symptoms that has never been diagnosed. And I think it's just because I was born in the early 2000s when um, I still believe that uh, that the idea that vaccines caused autism was still a prevalent idea. So kids, they weren't really looking for autism in females because they didn't see it. And there were also this huge stigma around, you know, autism as a disorder. It was really not like seen in the best way. Um, And another reason I think that contributed to me not having this diagnosis is that I was really, really smart as a kid. Um, I was in the gifted program. I graduated high school valedictorian 4.0. I'm still doing really great in college. So I've never really been Uh, mentally delayed in terms of intelligence. It was always more physical stuff, which um, if we want to go into like some symptomatic type deals, I went through and looked at uh, what the DSM-5 and the NIH had to say about like specific things that, hey, this is what a child with ASD would present with. And so I tried to like relate it back to Um, stuff that I had experienced. So the first part of it comes with deficits in social communication and social interactions in different contexts. So there's the socio-emotional, which is basically, you know, failure for normal back and forth conversation. And as a kid, I really did struggle to have friends, which I think the gifted program really helped with because I was forced into the same class with the same like 12 kids for three and four years. Um, So that really did help. But otherwise, even in high school and middle school and even now in college, I really do struggle with um, having regular conversations. Um, I don't really know how to do it, (laughs) if that makes any sense. Like, I don't know how to initiate a conversation. Um, And I think my current experiences with this are definitely more related to social anxiety and being judged for interests. So uh, one thing you'll see a lot is that um, the symptoms that I've looked through for ASD and I've done a little bit of self-reflection, most of it I believe is the root cause of why I have social anxiety, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, hopefully. Um, And so like that's a huge thing that I've come to realize over the past like week preparing for this. Um, So I hope that is a little bit insightful, but some other stuff is I'm really bad about keeping eye contact with people. Um, Even if it's through a FaceTime call, Utah knows this really well. I don't look straight at a person um, unless it's like an interview where I have to. Um, I lose track of conversations a lot. And sometimes my gestures don't always match 
what's being said. So I try to match them, which is a little bit of um, like situational conformity, but it also is like, what do I, I don't know what to do with my hands and I don't know what to like respond to what this person is telling me. Um, again, difficulty with relationships. And then the second half of this, you can stop me from going too far, but oh, you're good. No. Uh, there it's restrictive, repetitive behaviors, interests, and activities. So they have a motor section. So I was a really big nail biter as a kid. I think it was like 11 or 12 when I finally was able to stop. And even now it's like, I try not to, but it, it happens. Like, so if I'm like watching a movie or I'm super anxious and I just need something to do, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, I think my mom could have a lot more insight into what I did as a little kid about like, you know, hair twisting. I did a lot of pencil tapping and pen clicking. I still do that now. Um, and one like signature ASD like symptom is hand waving or finger wiggling, which I do a lot. Now that I like think about it, if I'm talking, I always am moving my hand or if I just need something to do or if I'm trying to think, I'm like moving my hand back and forth. I wish I could like show you what I'm doing, but it's just <laughs> me moving my hand back and forth. Um, you know, there's uh, the ch traditional hyper hypo reactivity to sensory input. For me, I am definitely a hyper reactive. Um, I've always had a weird aversion to textures. That's why I'm a super picky eater. Um, I'm not so much anymore. I've kind of grown out of it a little bit, but um, I don't drink soda for that reason. Yuta knows very well about that. <laughs> yep. um, and I can't wear really specific, like I have to wear a very specific set of clothes because I can't stand the way some clothes feel. Um, it's really weird. Like currently I am wearing a sports bra, a t-shirt and shorts. Um, this is basically what I wear every single day unless I have to wear something else. Mm -hmm. um, so again, as somebody who has social anxiety, I have a lot of hyperreactivity to visual and sensory input. Um, so if I'm like at the mall, you've got me for maybe two hours max before I've either got to eat or I've got to go home. So that, that's one thing. Or if I'm going to our Strozier library, I can't really focus in there unless I'm in like the grad student section where it's mm -hmm. pin drop quiet. Um, yeah. And so, you know, and these are not one thing that I was reading is that any of these symptoms and there's a bunch more I can continue talking about, but they are not better explained by intellectual disability or developmental delay. Um, so again, I was really smart as a kid. I didn't have any present intellectual delays or disabilities that interfered with how I learned. And it was pretty much all social related. Um, and that's still one of my areas of fixation. So one of the things that people with ASD do is they fixate on a topic, a detail, facts. Um, I'm really into Star Wars and Harry Potter. And as a kid, I was really into space and Rachel Ray, which is so weird. Like, why was I into Rachel Ray? I don't know. Um, and so this, I, I consider them like comfort interests, like what I go mm -hmm. back to, what I feel safest in. And again, that just goes back to the social part of um, this disability. And so I'm really detail oriented. I love facts. I know random things about everything. Like, mm -hmm. you could ask me, how did the color purple come about? And I could probably talk for about 15 minutes about how we got the color purple. Um, 
And so you see, I have all this stuff and it goes back to, you know, I think the only reason I didn't get a diagnosis as a child is because my parents didn't look at it. Like, obviously they recognized that I had some social, something hindering my social abilities. Um, and, you know, never in any of my developmental scans, never in any of my gifted tests or IQ tests or anything like that, did anyone say, huh, this girl needs to have an ASD questionnaire. I, I don't really know how they test for it. Um, Just an assessment. But yeah, so I've, I've never had it. I don't even know if I've, like, aside from this little, like, stuff I found from the DSM-5, I don't know what an ASD um, assessment looks like, so <laughs> I can't really talk about what that is. But um, again, I think it just goes back to, you know, the early 2000s. I don't think people believe the girls could get it as much. Um, and yeah, so that's my spiel on why I don't have a diagnosis, but how I think I am semi-qualified to talk about this. Sweet. So that, yeah, that, um, that you definitely provided definitely a plethora of information there and i think that like with all of your examples they continue just to point back to the fact that just because you don't receive a diagnosis doesn't mean it's not present um because like you said I, I remember when we were first talking about um doing this podcast when i was facetiming with you and you were looking up the dsm things and you were just like oh my gosh what have you done to me because you were just like <laughs> finding yourself in yeah, all of those I... diagnostic criteria and so i yeah, I, I remember that, and so it, it's it's fun to see that you. I, I'm glad that you've been able to take the time over the past week or so to sort of reflect on that and, and see all mm -hmm. of that. Um, and some of these things that like you mentioned, some of the stuff like you said, keeping attention during conversations or making eye contact, and you were you were like he all knows about this. I'm, and I'm just like yeah, I, like thinking back. I mean, I, I remember when we would be FaceTiming and you would um, either be working on like an application for something and you just glance back to the, the screen and, and like answer a question and then you go type some more and just like being able to multitask and stuff like that. But but then thinking about it from this perspective and being like, were you multitasking or was that your, like, your way of, of doing more than one thing at once, you know, like not yeah. keeping attention all in one spot. Um, yeah. And then even, this reminds me, you'll laugh at this, but it reminds me of that, the time that we were FaceTiming and next thing I knew you were asleep completely. <laughs> and, um, and then Nelly, who um, obviously the listeners, Nelly, your sister, she, she was Snapchatting me and I was like, I think Lily fell asleep, but FaceTime was still on. And then I see Nelly run into the room on the FaceTime. And so it just, it really speaks to that, um, like short, maybe contributing to a short attention span and just like losing you after a little bit. And so, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's, that was something that I remembered. And then just like, remember you talking about like having a fixation on certain interests or stuff like that. Um, and one of the things that you read to me was, was how it said that like, to the point that other people are like, why are you so interested in this? And, and I see that like when we're mm -hmm. having conversations with our friend group and, and people are like, and, and I do this too, like when, when I am passionate about something and I'm talking about it, like I can talk to you about it for 20 minutes and you're interested in it, but then I mention it to the group and they're all just like, okay, who cares? And they do that to you too with like Star yeah. Wars and stuff. And like, somebody else will just be like, why, why do we care or whatever? And so like, I, I see that stuff. Cause yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's a result of like those, those diagnostic criteria that you read. So thank you for pro mm -hmm. providing all those examples for sure. I hope you have enjoyed what you have heard so far and we'll get back to the conversation in a few moments. 
If you like what you've heard, we would greatly appreciate it if you would leave a review, share us on your social media, or recommend us to your friends. We'd love to know what you think. That being said, if you are moved by this podcast and would like to partner with us financially, we would love to have that conversation with you. We want to continue spreading awareness and normalizing the conversation and creating content for our listeners, but we are college students, so financial support to offset production costs would go a long way toward helping us to do so. Thank you for your support, and let's get back to our conversation. Jumping on to the next thing, I don't know how much you you know about this. Um, We might have touched on it briefly before talking, but um, Mm -hmm. I'll just give a, a quick information here. When we think about disabilities, we look at them, um, people tend to look at disabilities um, in one model or the other. There's two different models. And one is the biological medical model, and that is um, what what science says or what biology says or what medicine says about um, the disorder. And, and like whether it's ASD or whether it's a physical disability, for me it's, it's low vision, whatever the disability is, they look at it biologically and how this thing is wrong with you as a person genetically or biologically or or wired inside of your brain that makes something wrong with you versus the other model the social model is how does society disable you and then we that kind of goes into uh, how you arrange your words so do you say a disabled person or a person who is disabled and so the person who is disabled follows that social model because you're being disabled you're not you're you're not disabled, but you're being disabled by society, and that kind of plays into this idea that society society is not accessible to people with disabilities, right? And so I was just interested to know if you had um, any thought on you know, especially considering that you don't actually have a diagnosis, and so it's harder for someone to look at your disability with a biological perspective because it's not though you have seen the symptoms and though you're pretty confident in saying that you you probably have asd we can't definitively say that with a biological perspective how does how does that um like how does the social model specifically impact you because yours is mainly um how you're disabled by society right so i think um a lot about how people perceive ASD revolves around the fact that we demonize ASD. Um, Mm -hmm. We're like, oh my gosh, this child needs to be fixed. And you know that with your um, physical disability, you know, it's all about fixing the person um, and getting them, you know, back to normal. When in reality, my having these weird tics and quirks and like stuff is my normal. Like, there's no normal baseline for me to go back to. I don't have the physical baseline that I am under. We talk about this a little bit in ethics, like where coercion, I know this has no relevance right now, but it will, I promise. So, like, (laughs) coercion undermines consent because it puts you under your moral baseline, and the only way for you to return to normal is to succumb to that coercion. In the case of having ASD, physical disabilities or any type of disability, whether, you know, diagnosed or not, that's your normal. I I have nowhere to go but me. And that's, I think, part of why I really do understand the social model, especially as a person who, like, science has not said yes. (laughs) So, I mean, obviously my disability is not um, in any way, like, physically hindering me. Um, I think I'm really high functioning, uh, especially like 
you know, compared to some of the other people with ASD that I've met. So I don't have to, I don't get accommodations. I don't get anything else, but that also is because I don't have a specific diagnosis. But overall, I really do think that like, because my normal is not what other people's normal is, Mm -hmm. that society has decided like, oh, she has anxiety, she has depression, she's weird. So we are going to put her in this very specific um, like section of society and interact with her when we have to, but then we're just going to go back to normal. Um, mm-hmm. And so I hope that that kind of makes sense. And I, ho- I, I hope you really like, I think you can understand like the moral base, this baseline is not something that's flexible. You are who you are. There's no changing that. You can't change something about yourself unless you are like dedicated to it. And I'm not necessarily dedicated to changing myself because I like who I am. So. Yeah. And, and ultimately too, you shouldn't need to. Um, you being who you yeah. are should be good enough. I mean, it's good enough for you. And one thing we talk mm-hmm. about a lot in disability studies is, um, you know, people trying to get to a normal life from where they are. And and the, the question becomes, you know, why? Why do they need to get to a place that society considers normal when what they're living with mm-hmm. now is normal to them and they are happy? Like you like you just said, you are happy with who you are. You are happy with the life you've led. But society would look at you being someone with ASD and say, how can we improve her quality of life? But then it kind of comes back to like, who the heck says she hasn't had a good quality of life? Like that's you as society Absolutely. that haven't, that's you disabling her. That's you putting her in a box, you know? And so, yes, um, absolutely. and so I, I, I appreciate your insight there. Um, one other, another thing that I wanted to sort of jump to is you mentioned this before um, and you mentioned through your reflection over the past week, you've, you've kind of thought about your um, sort of depressive and anxiety symptoms coming, stemming from um, having ASD or even having symptoms of ASD without a diagnosis and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to share another statistic really quick. Um, so we know that anxiety disorders affect an estimated 11 to 40% of children and teens on the autism spectrum. And also depressive symptoms affect an estimated 7% of children and 26% of adults with autism. Uh, and so with that, like, if you just want to take a few minutes to sort of expand on like, how you've experienced anxiety and depressive symptoms um, and and how you relate that, how you attribute that to um, having autism or presumably having autism. Right. So um, I, again, I don't know if this is just my parents' fault or my fault, but I am not diagnosed and like, I do not have diagnosed GAD, social anxiety or depression. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think if I went to a psychiatrist, they could take like three looks at me and be like, oh, okay, yeah. (laughs) Um, so as I've gotten older, I have definitely, um, seen it get, I don't want to say worse because I don't, I mean, anxiety is not something I can control. Um, but it has become more noticeable to me. Um, and that's, again, it's, since it's not diagnosed, I can't really like seek anything for it. Um, and so I have like continuing about how it kind of affects how the ASD has led into this um, because I have a I have a constant fear of details and previous actions. So this is going to sound really weird, but and I have this thing where if I ever get like slightly depressed or slightly sad 
or slightly anxious, I start to think about stuff that I've done in the past that's really stupid. So like a random example off the top of my head, um, I was at a camp one time and I said something really stupid to this person and like it was completely like now that I look at it, I'm like, that's not that stupid. Like, why would my head think of that is stupid? But like all the time, like if I'm just sitting here doing something, something, if I like get on a train of thought and I start thinking about camp or I start thinking about a specific person, I'm like, oh, I did that. That's so stupid. Um, and so definitely school and COVID has made that a lot worse because I have more time to think like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is definitely part of like my social anxiety, but that, that action has come from my ASD. So Mm -hmm. if it's a weird action where I was talking too much, I overshared like today on the phone, I thought I overshared with this person who was just calling to see if I, my application for this apartment was going fine Uh and i like thought about for like three minutes i was like that's so stupid lily why did you do that but that again is like i was just talking and i was you know i was just trying to answer the question and sometimes a a part of it is you know your uh what you say doesn't always match what's happening and i you know difficulty adjusting to a specific social context so um, that definitely has been the root cause of why I have social anxiety and why I am so introverted. I think, um, I'm a naturally an introvert, but I think that I've become more introverted as time has gone on just because I'm scared that someone's going to think I'm weird or like think that I've done something wrong when it's not my fault, if that makes sense. Yeah. So like me doing a like me talking about star wars especially especially sorry i'm like need a water or something (laughs) like i was in a car with somebody talking about star wars and they were just looking at me like i was the craziest person on the planet and i was Mm -hmm. like really okay cool first but again it just all goes back to that these things that are about me because i have asd really do like on a daily basis impact my anxiety symptoms it makes it worse a lot of the time mm-hmm. as well as like periods of depression so i hope that like makes sense in a way yeah um, no it does i i think so so what it's what i'm getting out of this and, and i want to make sure kind of reflect it back to you make sure i'm hearing this right is like these sort of symptoms and these things that you have these little quirks like where you're on the phone with somebody and then you get off and then you start thinking about what you said and you're like wow that was stupid ultimately those flow out of um that those symptoms of asd but they're sort of triggered by um like they're sort of at at any given point they're triggered by that social anxiety but they ultimately flow out of that deeper rooted cause of asd yeah i mean i love that you put it as like it's triggered by social anxiety because that's like really the best the best way to put it it's Mm -hmm. like my symptoms become more noticeable like to me when I am anxious and so it's Mm -hmm. kind of like a never-ending cycle Um, and so when I have a minute to be out of it it's really nice but most of the time I'm just in this like crazy long cycle yeah constant just back and forth you know okay Um, well thank you for sharing that information as well Um, I definitely think that that's 
a bunch of like a, a lot of things that people who don't have ASD or anxiety or, or not only don't have diagnosis, but don't even have any struggle with them whatsoever. It's, it's a lot of good insight mm-hmm. for people to be more aware, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So another topic that I wanted to touch on is stigmas. And um, we know that with um, with anxiety, or I'm sorry, with with autism, a lot of people face these stigmas and you'll have um like you'll have the student at school and all the other kids don't want to hang out with them or play with them because they're different or that sort of thing. And so um, being someone who has symptoms of ASD but hasn't necessarily received that diagnosis, have stigmas been present for you any, anywhere from the time you can remember when you were little all the way up through now? Have they been present for you at all? And then if they have, have they been worse or not as bad that you from your perspective than someone who is diagnosed or someone who isn't as high functioning right so um i think that because i've never been diagnosed um i've never had that specific label put on me that it's Mm -hmm. been more of an internal issue fighting my internal stigmas rather than fighting like the external stigmas if that like i can't saying if that makes sense but it, it i hope it does yeah. um like i try to present normal um something else that we could talk about is social camouflaging and it's on the list i do that a lot <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is on the list look at that um i do that a lot because i don't want to fit these like stereotypes of people who have asd or people who have anxiety depression so i think that because i've never had like the label, like if my professor was doing attendance and you saw the little apple that says, hey, this person has a disability. I've never had that except for like having gifted in like high school or something. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been more of an internal issue. And so because it's an internal issue and not always an external issue, I think it would definitely have been worse for me, like finding my place in society and feeling successful and like okay with myself if I had the real diagnosis. So it's kind of like a, on one hand, I probably should because I would get access to more stuff, but also I'm glad I don't because it would probably like mess me up a lot. Mm -hmm. Sort of one of those catch 22 type deals. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, so speaking of social camouflaging, which you mentioned, I'm going to just give a quick quote about social camouflaging. And this comes from um, a, an academic article. It says, Many autistic people feel obliged to pretend not to be autistic. They invest considerable effort daily in monitoring and modifying their behavior to conform to conventions of non-autistic social behavior. This phenomenon has come to be called social camouflaging, also referred to as masking, compensation, and pretending to be normal. Um, another word we use for this in, in the disability community is passing, where um, you, you try to pass as not having ASD, or in mm-hmm. my case, as not being legally blind or, or whatever. And so just a, another common phrase for it. Um, but on this idea of social camouflaging, and, and you already mentioned that this is something that has um, been prevalent to you, um, how, if you would just share a little bit of insight about you know how, how that's affected you, how you've experienced this idea of social camouflaging and um, what role it's played in your life. Right. So I completely understand that social camouflaging statistic. And as a person who is pretty high functioning, I'm actively doing it all the time. Like I'm doing it right now, trying to make sure that I don't overshare. I'm trying to make sure that I'm like paying attention to talking to you. And because I I know you really well, I don't Mm -hmm. feel as weird about it. But if somebody from the disability um, studies here at Florida State called me and said, hey, I need you to do this thing. 
um, you know, come by my office, I would be trying to match everything I do to what they want me to say. So if Mm -hmm. they were trying to demonize autism or demonize ASD, I would like, I think I might end up going with it, even though I know that's really bad, but Uh you know, I definitely do try to match my personality. Um, I talk a lot about having counselor Lily personality. So I have my really introverted personality and I have this, um, because I work in camps and I work in a, and as a, a CNA, I work in uh, situations where I have to be, you know, an extrovert and omnivert sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I try to match my personality, the comments that I'm making, you know, how I'm sitting, what I do with my hands, what I like, everything. It, it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of patience as well to like figure out, okay, so I'm in this specific situation. What do I do that matches this? What have I done that doesn't match this? Mm-hmm. Um, but it does really help. Like I know it like sounds weird to like say that passing helps, but it definitely does. Um, like as a person who can pass, as a person who can actively socially camouflage, I think it helps a lot. Like mm-hmm. just keep me feeling better in my head. But physically, it takes a lot out of me. So yeah. yeah. I- and just to like add a add a personal perspective on that for me like passing has always been something that with my disability it's not so easy to do um mm-hmm. but i know that growing up my my mom and dad used to talk about how because my dad has the same issue that i have this with, with vision and they would talk about how growing up he would hide it from people and as hard as he could he wouldn't accept any accommodations at school he wouldn't take any mm-hmm. like he wouldn't do anything that they were offering him because he didn't want people to know that he had a disability um, and at the time growing up, I didn't know what that was called. And of course, now I know that that's called passing and, and social camouflage. But um, definitely, I I understand, and I can't say I relate to because I haven't necessarily experienced it, but I, I understand when you say that um, that it takes a lot out of you. Because when you have to think about every single little action that you're doing, um, and how can I do this and make it less obvious? How can I do this and be subtle how can I match this how can I like when you have to think about all those things constantly I imagine that has to be so not only physically draining but just mentally and emotionally draining too and so then you have this then you have this um disability this ASD but then that's compounded with this just physical exhaustion all the time and mental exhaustion of having to you know mask that and and how can I and and so I I say that to say that like I definitely get that and um and so also I want to tell you that I'm appreciative that you feel comfortable enough to talk about these things with me in a way that you wouldn't with like just some random person because I I I don't know I just I'm appreciative that you're willing to share um (laughs) and so yeah and so so then the next thing that I was going to ask you about is um I think oh yeah yeah so just that's pretty much my entire list of things um Mm -hmm. If you have anything else that you want to talk about, by all means, but I wanted to ask you for sure, if you were to, if someone were to come to you that is in a similar situation to you, um, but maybe is a lot younger, somebody that doesn't have a diagnosis, um, but is experiencing symptoms like you do, if you had to give them a word of advice, if you were to take the experience that you've had, um, and if there's something that you know now about um, experiencing ASD without a diagnosis or anything about what you've experienced, there was something that you know now that you didn't know before that you wish you would have known. What would you share with somebody who, um, you know, what advice would you give them if they 
had ASD or had anxiety caused by ASD um, or had any of those things, or really anybody that has a disability that's not diagnosed, if you want to be more broad about it, like what advice would you give them? Right. So the first thing I would do is definitely like to sit this hypothetical person down and be like, the first thing you need to do is get it out of your head that it's your fault. Yeah. Um, I think for the longest time that I thought having this specific disability and having like social weird, like being weird socially was my fault. Mm-hmm. Like, sorry, I'm getting a phone call. I don't know who this is. Um, <laughs> I thought it was my fault. Like I did something wrong growing up or like something around me wasn't right. And it was my fault. So first thing I would say is don't demonize yourself. Mm-hmm. And don't let other people demonize you because that ultimately that like me blaming myself for it has made it so much worse in the long run. Mm-hmm. The second thing I would say is definitely seek help. Like I never really get help because I'm a really stubborn person. I'm really independent. So I like your dad, I totally would not. If somebody offered me accommodations, I wouldn't take it. Mm-hmm. But I think if a person is really struggling with it and it's affecting literally every part of their life like asd and anxiety and depression do take get help like even if it's just talking to somebody like your parent or going to get counseling like i know a lot of universities offer counseling and sometimes you can go to like a school guidance counselor at like high school or middle school mm-hmm. i think just letting somebody know that you're struggling is like the first step to feeling better about yourself mm-hmm. um so, you know, just overall, like, the disability does not define who you are. And this disability is not your fault. It's nothing you did in a past life. It's nothing your parents did wrong. It's literally just, you know, if you want, if I want to be religious about it, God created us to have, you know, specific personalities, and it's all within this plan. But if I don't want to be religious about it, you know, each human is individual, um, Though our DNA may be 99.9% similar, that 0.1% makes you who you are. So don't let it, you know, like demonize you. Don't feel Mm -hmm. like it's your fault because it's completely not. It can be you. If you want to blame it on society, please do, because it's probably society's fault if you want to go back to the social model. But yeah, just don't take it like this is my fault overall. Mm -hmm. Like that's. I, it's in so many words, don't blame yourself for a disability you can't control. Exactly. And um, I just, just to speak to you, you said one of the things that you'd mentioned just now is, is not letting the disability define you. And I would just add there that I think of, as well as I know you, I would, I would say that you're a poster child for not letting disability define you. <laughs> Thank um, you so much. Because I, I, I didn't, in all, in all transparency, I didn't know that you struggled with ASD symptoms, diagnosed or undiagnosed, until I had known you for well over a year. Um, and I, I remember when I first learned that, I was like, no, really? And yeah, just I because know. It, it gets a lot of people. Yeah, because you've, like, you have, like, you've taken those stereotypes that people have about ASD, and you've, like, just crushed them, because you, like you said, you were the valedictorian of your high school class. Like, Someone with ASD, according to society, shouldn't do that. Shouldn't be able to do that. Yeah, exactly. Like you go to you go to Florida State and you're an honors medical student there. Like someone with ASD by society standards shouldn't be able to do that. And so, like single handedly, mm-hmm. you're taking those stereotypes and you're like 
crushing them. And so like, definitely, I, I commend you for that. And so, um, thank you so much. Yeah. And, and I, I gotta tell you, like, I, I caught myself being a member of society at large when I first learned about it, because I was just like, what? No, she can't have ASD. Like she's so smart, yeah. yada, yada. But again, like that was just me falling into society standards of someone can't mm-hmm. be smart and have ASD. Someone can't be super passionate about things and have ASD, like, you know what I'm saying? And so like, I, I commend yeah. you for that. And so I, I really appreciate Thank your willingness you. to share about it. Of course, absolutely. Anything I can do to, you know, help like undemonize and like make this really weird disease that, not disease, but condition that people mm-hmm. like, even still to this day, people are like, oh, vaccines give you autism or autism, like, my uncle has Asperger's and he is one of the smartest people I have ever met. He's a chemical engineer for Ford. He like, mm-hmm. you know, you can't, it's all about the society and how they see people who have a disability. And so I'm glad to be able to have a small voice to say, Hey, we're not all stupid and like 24 hour needing help. If we mm-hmm. have a disability, that's absolutely not how this works. Exactly. Um, is there anything else that you want to share that you would want to tell um, anybody who might be listening to this as far as um, ASD or anxiety and depression or um, anything along those lines just out of awareness, you know? Um, the only thing I could say is don't let what society says about a disability influence how you think about it. Do your own research. If you meet a person who has ASD, has vision issues, has down syndrome has any specific disability whether you know it or not don't let how you perceive that disability or how you perceive them be affected by what society thinks do your research i know that's such a terrible thing to say is always like do your (laughs) research but if you're genuinely curious do some research and if you know somebody with that disability say hey i have a genuine question this is not like I have no ill will towards you. I just want to have a serious conversation. And, you know, this that's basically what Utah did. He was like, hey, I want to have a serious conversation about this. And I think if you do that, people are going to be so much more open to talking about disability and talking about their struggles rather than sitting in a corner. And like what I would have done is sitting in a corner and not talking about it and not saying anything. So just don't be afraid to ask questions. Be nice when you ask your questions and make sure you know what you're talking about. Because the worst thing you can do is label a person who doesn't have something or incorrectly label a person who does have something with something that makes them feel bad. And then you get back into the whole cycle that we talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, I and, and I think, too, to speak to that um, is, as far as I, I, one, I don't think it can be overstated about doing your research and actually understanding things. Um, I, I feel like too many people today just make assumptions based on stereotypes instead of actually learning and, and doing their own research. I um, mean, two, the other thing with that is I tell people this literally all the time, and I think that you would agree. Um, when it comes to approaching someone who has a disability with the mindset of wanting to learn about that disability and learn how you can better um, be a friend to them, but like in spite of that disability, like. I tell people all the time, I would rather you come up to me and ask me about my vision, ask me about what I can see and what I can't see, ask me about what I struggle with, 
you know, ask people what I'm capable of than to see you whispering to someone else and asking them and saying, can he he see well enough to do that? Oh my gosh, can he do that job? Like, I would rather you come up to me and blatantly ask me because I would love to educate you. And that shows to me that you are taking the the initiative to learn about it. And so I feel like you would agree Mm -hmm. with that, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think if you genuinely want to know something, I think it's about anything. If you want to know something about a specific culture, a specific ethnicity, if you want to know um, about a disability or just anything in the world, just don't be afraid to ask questions. And, you know, as long as you have a genuine non-malicious intent behind asking a question, you're going to get an answer. Mm -hmm. So don't take, don't be mean about it. Just be nice and ask a genuine question. And if you're motivated by wanting to learn, uh, I know Utah and I, as people with disabilities would be overwhelmingly happy to talk to you about our disability and our struggles. And I think any person ever who is different from you would love to talk to you about it if you have the right intention behind it. Sweet. Well, thank you so much for being a part of this today. Thank you for sharing some of your um, perspective and insight. We've been going for just about 45 minutes now. So um, that's going to be about all. Um, I, I know that we could go on and talk about this yeah. and cover 25 more topics, oh, yeah. but um, thank exactly. you for thank you for being a part of this today. I, I really hope that whoever ends up listening to this anywhere, uh, anytime, gets something out of it and is able to sure. you know glean something from it and become more aware. Um, and so that's my ultimate yes. goal with this. So, like I said, thank you, Lily, so much for being a part of this, and of course, um, thank, thank you, you all for, for listening. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode and were able to get as much from it as we did creating it. As mentioned before, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. I'd like to thank Lily for being so open to sharing her experiences with me and helping to normalize the disability conversation. Please be on the lookout for our next episode. Thank you again for listening to the Disability Perspectives Podcast. Until next time.